The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux, www.freedomainradio.com, Chapter 37, Dinner with Terry and the Bugles. Angela greeted Terry in the hallway with a smile so bright it could have knocked over a lighthouse. Terry, so good to see you again. Hello, Mrs. Bugle, said Terry, grinning and blushing, thinking, Ooh, I wish there were some older daughters. He glanced around the house. It was nicely done up in that careless Ikea fashion, but with much more expensive furniture. Bachelors just can't scatter magazines and pillows that artfully. My children are not down yet, she said, taking his coat and turning her head. Sarah, Justin, dinner! Sarah came down the stairs, a notebook tied around her neck. She came up to Terry and reached out her hand. Well, she's very serious, thought Terry, taking her small hand. It's hard to shake properly without any leverage. Do you like Terry? she asked. He felt oddly displaced for a moment, then realized it was half of or Mr. Coleman. Terry is fine, he said, feeling like Jimmy on Seinfeld. Terry is getting confused. <laughs> Sarah took her notebook from around her neck. How long have you worked with my father? she asked, pen poised. Angela sighed. Sarah, that can wait. I'm sure Terry would like a drink. She's going through some sort of Brenda Starr phase. Reporting everything, she added to his blank look. Dave also appeared at the door to the basement. Terry boy, he boomed. How the hell are you? He walked forward and gave his standard handshake, which seemed designed to crush all Terry's finger bones into one tiny fossil. Come down for a drink. No, Dave, said Angela evenly. He's not here to talk business. Come up and we'll have a drink in the living room, like, you know, people who live together. Justin, she cried. Terry, what will you have? We have beer, wine, spirits, lemonade, every kind of pop, even brio chinito. Juice? Milk? Um... A beer would be nice, he said, feeling like someone who is nineteen and three days old over at a friend's parents' place. What kind? Smithix? Done. Dave? I'll have the same. Lemonade for me, please, said Sarah, her eyes never leaving Terry. She's a little under-socialized, he thought. Angela went off to get the drinks. Terry, Dave, and Sarah went into the living room. Terry never seemed to be surprised by the neatness and well-proportioned nature of rooms maintained by stay-at-home women. This was part of the great mystery of knick-knacks. What was the point of the descending row of ceramics ducks on the mantelpiece? Where would you even buy such things? It was part of the mystery of all the little things that go into making up a home. It was like visiting another planet. Terry was a bachelor through and through, which meant old grey coffee and scattered mugs, a half-hanging shower curtain, no matching plates, speakers almost half the size of his futon, and pictures hung wherever the last tenant's nails happened to be. But this room, it was well done, no question about it. It was fairly girly, true, but in a pleasing mom-like way. The cushions were well-placed, dark, but flowery. There was ridged beige wallpaper with little vertical stripes, and a bar of colour just around the ceiling, a wicker table with nice magazines, a thin brass cat, stitched homey homilies over the fireplace, and a whole lot of ducks. Angela loves ducks, said Dave, settling on the sofa. Actually, said Sarah gravely, Mom said once she likes ducks, and now everyone in the family gives her ducks. It's a joke, she added. Terry blinked, then shook his head and sat. Sarah was a little hypnotic. Two golden Labradors waddled into the room, their hind ends like swaying blonde carpets. This is timber and woodrow, said Dave. They came up to Terry and sniffed his crotch. They do that, said Sarah. Just flick their noses, laughed Dave. No, push them gently, said Sarah. Terry laughed, blushing again. G Good boys. Dave whistled piercingly. Terry jumped. The dogs withdrew. Angela came into the room carrying a tray with a checkered little cloth and frosted mugs of beer. Wow, thought Terry. Beer, beer, lemonade, hard lemonade for the hostess. Is Justin down yet? We got the house wired last fall, said Dave, because you can spend your entire life trying to get a teenager to hear you. I'd rather have just wired him.
Don't put that in your notebook, Sarah, he said, seeing her pen rise. Just interact with us. You'll make Terry feel like a specimen. Terry wanted to smile at her, but Dave was looking at him. He gave her a good thought instead. I'll get him, said Angela, rising and going out. So, said Dave, still looking at Terry. How many hours a week do you work? asked Sarah. Terry opened his mouth. Dave laughed. Sweetie, we're having some big people drinks and not talking about work, at least for a while. He turned back to Terry. Where are you from again? St. Mary's. Never been there. Is Mary a saint? asked Sarah. I thought she was a goddess. Dave shot a look at her. I don't think goddess is the right word, Sarah. What is then? I don't know. I don't know why it's called that, said Terry. How many people? asked Sarah. Oh, not many. Fifteen hundred? Let's just say this. When Terry left, they had to change the population sign. <laughs> Dave roared with laughter. Oh, I grew up in a small town, too. My father was mayor. I learned everything about life, going about with him on the back of a hay cart while he gave speeches to the farmers. And he got them some good deals, too, good cash from the feds. He said to me, Son, you can go and preach. We've given up this, but we've gotten that. And everyone yawns. Go and yell, No surrender! And you've got one happy, happy mob. He sighed deeply. Lord, I miss that old guy. He smelt of machines, said Sarah. Well, he loved to fix things. No shame in that, sweetie. What does your father do, Terry? He's a vice-principal. High school, junior high. Remember, there's a pal in principal said Sarah. That's how I remember to spell it. I have to use it a lot more than principal with an L-E. The principal goal of this or that. Never, this is the principle of something, except in science, which has lots of principles. They're like axioms in math. Oh, she loves logic, the little devil, said Dave. A math teacher thinks she's the second coming. Everyone competes for second. They all know who'll be first. Justin came into the room carrying a can of Diet Coke. Hey, he said, turning a chair around from the dining table and sitting astride it. Hi, said Terry. Terry, said Angela, this is Justin. He's just signed a recording contract. Mom, said Justin, you promise not to introduce me like that. Sorry, dear. You're a singer? asked Terry. Justin nodded. What kind of music? Justin shrugged. Whatever we can get away with, it's, it's sort of a lark. Dave beamed. He was doing karaoke in a friend's basement, and the dad, who's a music producer, signed him on the spot. Like Lana Turner, said Sarah. Exactly, smirked Justin. Exactly like Lana Turner. I've thrown some money into the band, said Dave. Once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. We have faith in this family. So, Terry, said Angela, leaning forward, how do you like life in the big city? I don't know, said Terry. I spend most of the time in the office. Well, that's no good, she said. We have to get you out a little. Bring him up to the cottage, Dave. When was the last time you had a day off? asked Sarah. Terry is very excited with his work at the moment, said Dave. I keep telling him to go home. Terry shifted on the couch. It was very deep. I have a big presentation on, uh, well, it's... No, tell, said Angela. Terry has come up with a new product, said Dave, and we're going to show it to some new investors on Monday. Is it any good? asked Angela. Terry frowned. In, in what way? Does it follow the principle of excellence, said Sarah. That's principle with an L-E. I mean, said Angela, will it sell a lot? We have no idea. We haven't, Dave snorted. It will revolutionize the way that software is written. For Windows and the web. I get tons of advertising in my email, said Sarah. Some of it is very rude. Can you write something to stop that? No, said Terry. Most ads are sent from Hotmail accounts, online email. Companies create accounts, send the ads, then close them down. And you can't stop that? Terry shook his head. No, it's impossible to trace. That's, that's not how the web... But what about this development thing you've written? Asked Angela, leaning forward. Is it as good as my husband says? Well, it's it's very early, but I I think it's a good idea. I I don't know about the. Dave laughed. I said to Terry, I said, I said, tell me, boy, would you use this kind of tool to write software? And he said, yeah, of course. He was creating it so he could use it. 
There are 4 million Access developers in the U.S. alone. If we capture even 10% of them at $500 U.S. per copy, that's some serious scratch. I sit in my office these days thinking of the environmental market and I can barely stay awake. Angela smiled at Terry. What does it do exactly? It takes up valuable dinner time, said Dave, whistling through his teeth. I smell, uh, I smell, hey, that your famous manicotti. Angela smiled, white spots on her cheek. Italian food's so good, murmured Dave, leaning towards Terry. You'd swear she was a mafia wife. If she were, said Justin, that would really help my singing career. It's not a career, said Sarah. It's a lark. Vulcan, he snapped. Relativist, Angela rose. All right, let's go bury these monsters under some cobs. Terry, what kind of salad dressing do you like? Uh, any, any kind is fine. We have uh, vinaigrette, blue cheese, Thousand Island, Caesar, Greek, Italian, all low-fat, I'm afraid. I swear to God, 5,000 sit-ups a day. I still can't lose this middle, said Dave, patting his stomach. Actually, said Terry, you lose that you're cold all the time. My dad is really skinny, eats whatever he wants, drives my mom mad. Angela snorted. There's one of those at our luncheons. She can eat half the buffet and still fit into a size two. Pure evil. Once she even complained about being unable to gain weight. Once. When Aunt Rachel was pregnant, said Sarah, she looked like a snake with a watermelon inside. Dave laughed. Who told you that? You did. Not bad. Not bad. All right, said Angela. Get up, you slothful lot, to the table. As she passed by Terry, she murmured, so low he barely heard, I need to see you. Chapter 38 Gordon and Alder Gordon was almost at the end of his rope. He had tried and tried, once more with the Babblefish's help, to translate his thesis into something approaching the language of modern academia, but... He felt like he was burying a child in dust bunnies, or, or spray-painting the Mona Lisa with WD-40. And now, now it was September, a new term was starting, and he still had no advisor. He'd been working on his great idea all summer, but without an advisor, he was just swiping his library card for no purpose. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Gordon entered Alder's office. Alter had been keeping his office hours, which was a good time to catch up on his paperwork if there was any, or to stare at the bookcase and dissolve into dreamy, touchy abstractions. Office hours were a constant source of irritation for him. His students did not tend to do very well. Once they did worse than random on a multiple-choice exam, yet neither did they come to him for help. Like most graduate students, Alter had suffered under his own professors, and so came into his teaching role primed for contempt. The titanic indifference and incompetence of his students did not help this, and his twice-weekly office hours only added to his frustration. The hollow terror he often felt when alone could only be assuaged by inner distractions. The following topics were well-trod habitual paths. Where he stood in the academic pecking order where he would like to go for his sabbatical. How little the media understood the real issues. Whether he would ever be called on by the media to explain them. Why the students were so indifferent. Whether Joanne still loved him. How little she understood his work. Whether the referees on academic journals had it in for him. How creative he could be if he ever got the time. How could he conceivably discipline Stephen when puberty hit? who his allies and enemies were in the department, how stuck the older professors were in their thinking, how stuffy his office could be in winter, or cold, whether the cleaners really dusted or just pretended to, why he had the same tacky tin waste-basket that they had in the cafeteria. Was he hungry or just bored? He really should keep more snacks in here. He always had too many things on his to-do list. Man, it's going to be a long time till retirement. Thinking about how America was a shiny commercial monster feasting on poor countries. <gasps> the poor people in those poor countries. 
They never make any good movies about academics. Hollywood is so anti-intellectual. Who would play me in a movie? Why British intellectuals always just seem smarter? Maybe bad teeth are inversely related to intelligence. When there was a knock at his door, it took Alder almost ten seconds to register it. He blinked, sat forward suddenly on his chair, felt dizzy, and picked up a pen. I should get a radio in here so I can pretend I didn't hear the knocking over the classical music. Come in, he said, writing his name on an old interdepartmental memo. Gordon entered and stood by the door. One moment, said Alder, trying to write his name backwards. Redler, Redlam, Redrum. Finally he looked up. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Professor Parsons, said Gordon. Alder heard the exhaustion in the young man's voice and steeled himself for a grading petition. Gordon sat down heavily. There was a pause. Are you in one of my classes? prompted Alder, since Gordon seemed to have some difficulty starting, and he hated silence when someone else was in the room. It always seemed resentful. No, said Gordon, but I did sit in on one of your lectures yesterday, the history of Western thought. Ah, smiled Alder, my passion speech. It was, well, uh, qu quite moving to me, and it gave me some hope. Alder blinked. Hope? You believe that passion is central to the pursuit of ideas, that philosophy is more of a calling than a profession, that that calm detachment is not as important as rabid dedication. Everyone who thinks cares deeply, almost maniacally, about ideas, said Alder. Well, I, I'd, I'd never really thought about that. I thought I was very rational, but I have been... Oh, th th this, th this doesn't matter. No, go on, said Alder, fascinated. The boy hurts. Well, I have a thesis idea that I really care about, and I, I was trying to disguise it, because everyone disliked it so much. But everyone seems to see that I care anyway, so I I knew that you were my last chance, because I, I've, t I, I've talked to everyone else, and it's not because I don't value you, but I, I kept you for last, like, like a reserve. Who have you Who have you talked to? Most everyone in the department. Two, two in history, one in economics. Gordon sighed. Oh, that was a long shot. And what has the feedback been? Oh, oh you know, too, too ambitious, out of step, too radical, unprovable, untestable, self-referential. More of a PhD, a, a poor lead into a PhD, a lot of other stuff. Gordon shrugged. No one will let me do it. I see. And is it the only thing you want to do? Gordon shook his head, his cheeks red. Not not at first, no. But, but I think now that if no one is interested in this idea, then, then this might not be the right place for me, you know? If I choose something else, I will be accepting that academics is no place for what I really care about. And what would be the point of that? I mean, I mean staying here. It, it it would be a lie, for, for, for me, anyway. I see, said Alder. The kid was almost in tears, and that was more interesting than any idea he might have. He's almost crying over an idea. How strange. He must be an only child, unused to or unable to deal with conflict. A phrase came to him from a long-lost psychology roommate. Pressured speech. This boy has pressured speech. So you think that I might be able to help you? asked Alder, an odd sort of medieval benevolence flooding his bone marrow. Sure. Well, I, I think so. I hope so, said Gordon, his voice trembling, his eyes begging orbs of naked need. I'm... I've, I've given up trying to say this is true, or that it might even be true. But I, I really want to try to see what happens. I mean... I might find out that it's false, in which case, all right, no masters for me, but but I feel 
that it's true in my in my bones right there and I'll do it anyway even if I'm not in school because it's it's become a kind of idée fixe for me not that that makes it any more true but I can't stop thinking about it almost to the exclusion of anything else that may not be the most objective viewpoint said Alder gently no I know I know I've given up on that that will never be believed but I am very passionate about this idea. I know that much for certain. And that will be enough to drive me to whatever conclusion I come to. I will either learn my theory is flawed, and it's a big enough theory that disproving it is useful, I think, or that philosophers are flawed, which is also important, but arrogant, I know, or that rational analysis is impossible in this area, which is also helpful. I know how important limiting reason is these days. Not that I'm assuming anything of your beliefs, Professor, added Gordon quickly. I see, said Alder, leaning back. This unstable shimmering of need, pride, and desire was invading him, squirming through his nerves, charging him with overstimulated delight. Why don't you just tell me the idea, then? Gordon swallowed. Well, he said, I think that those philosophers who believe in higher realities have to advocate dictatorship as the ideal political model, while those who believe in empirical objective reality have to advocate limited democracy. The words rolled around in Alda's brain, awash in lovely, empty generalities. He fingered his inner depth charges, not wanting to rush this. That is quite a sweeping statement, said Alder slowly. So let's break it down and look at it in more detail. Gordon brightened. It was adorable, really. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Now, higher realities means something beyond physical reality, right? Right. No problem, I can accept that. But, of course, you will have to prove that physical reality exists. Ex excuse me? Well, if you are saying that there is a difference between higher realities and physical reality, you will have to prove that they are different at all. Some philosophers, you know, Descartes being one, believes that the physical world is no more real than heaven. So you'll have to show that he is wrong. Okay, said Gordon, writing in his notebook. Alder sucked his cheeks in, almost laughing. He could imagine what Gordon was writing. Step one, prove Descartes wrong. Now, he continued, you will also have to prove that metaphysics is linked to epistemology and epistemology to ethics, since I assume that you think dictatorship is not as good as, um, what was it, limited democracy? Finally, you have to tie ethics into politics, all in a seamless and perfectly reasoned progression. Gordon continued writing, Yes, yes, I think I've got that. Alter was dumbfounded. The boy was immune to sarcasm. Now, what do you mean by democracy? He asked after a moment. Well, voting, property rights, human rights, independent courts, the separation of church and state, freedom of expression... And does this kind of democracy exist in the modern world? Or has it at any time? In a, in a perfect form, no. We have a mixed economy now, so property rights are compromised. The separation of church and state is also imperfect, of course, among many, many other imperfections of form, not ethics, since I wouldn't want to go there. What about dictatorship? The absolute rule of an individual? No property rights, or, or, or freedom of speech, or the press, no, no due process of law. Again, none of which exist in absolute form. I think that they are more in evidence than perfect democracies, said Gordon, with a sudden flash in his voice. Perhaps, said Alder mildly. Now, I can think of some ways to simplify your thesis, or perhaps a better way of putting it would be to say that it might be improved, or... More acceptable, perhaps, if you would leave some of the conclusions to be drawn by your reader. Gordon frowned. Okay, 
Okay. What were you thinking of? Well, let's just say you forget about proving which one is right. Alder held up his hand. Just, just as a possibility. Assume that there is a higher reality and a mundane one, or use whatever term you prefer, and then say that there are certain tendencies for certain kinds of conclusions, without saying which ones are more valid, and then define those tendencies in the broadest possible terms. You can't bring property rights into it because there are lots of intelligent observers who would question their validity, and even within our own society they are seriously limited for the sake of the social good. Even voting might not help you because that is a flawed and often deceptive practice, perhaps something along the lines of collective decision-making or, or, or horizontal versus vertical societies. Alder began warming to his topic. You have to steer clear of absolutes, which is hard for the young, I know, but I think you are a bit of a right-winger, or, or a libertarian, perhaps. But, but rest assured, I have the same conversation with leftists as well. For better or worse, the Western world has settled into a belief that the middle road is best. Save the low, curb the high, that sort of thing. Now, you are clearly an idealist, which is interesting, and all the more so because you are arguing against idealism. And, and idealism is all right in my book. It indicates that you take ideas seriously and, and want to find the world through words, so to speak. But the last century, if anything, convinced everyone that idealism and absolutism was a very bloody business. Very bloody indeed. Oh my god, I sound like C.S. Lewis or some other fruity old English prof, thought Alder, then frowned. Where was I? Gordon cleared his throat. So you, you, you don't believe that dictatorships are worse than democracies? Well, tell me what you mean by worse. Worse, um... Less happy, less free? You are equating freedom with happiness. That is arguable. Gordon's brow furrowed. But you live in freedom. Don't, don't you prefer it? Of course I do, that's, because that's what I'm used to. That's what I have been raised to expect. But I would never for a moment say that freedom is some sort of absolute value. Are there any absolute values? Alder smiled. Well, that's, that's sort of a tricky question, Gordon, because, of course, if I say no, then you can pounce on me and say, Aha! Arguing that there are no absolute values is positing at least one absolute value, and since there is one, there may be more. And, and if I say yes, then the hunt is on for what they are to me, which I, I really could not tell you. Gordon blinked. So, 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 so there aren't any? I believe that the existence of universal values is much like the question of God's existence, un answerable. I would say that modern philosophy has recognized the futility of asking such questions, rather than saying, does God exist? It is, I think, far more interesting and useful to say, what does the idea of God mean to each culture or, or person, or, or why do people believe in God, or, or how does the concept of God change over time? Gordon sat back in his chair. He passed his hands in front of his eyes. It's also a question of utility, said Alder. Suppose I come up with some sort of magical, logical solution to the problem of God's existence, something so compelling and obvious that it was amazing that everyone else had missed it. Suppose I can finally prove that God exists or does not exist. So what? Gordon stared at him. If I say God does not exist, it is proved, said Alder. Is that going to change the mind of one religious person? No. It's about faith, they'll say. What about... God does exist. Atheists are not going to start going to church, are they? They'll quibble about logic or say that God's existence has nothing to do with organized religion. Nothing will change, really. Because everything is just opinion? Alda smiled. No, you're still thinking in absolutes. If you say everything is opinion, then one thing is not opinion, which is that everything is opinion. You have to stay away from these kinds of assertions altogether. They are very deceptive. So you cannot think logically about things? About things? You mean you mean things in the world? Yes. But we have no proof that things in the world really exist, or that their nature is anything like how we perceive them. But, but two and two make four, that we know. Yes, but there's no such thing as the number two in the world. There are two rocks, and two more make four, but they're not equal in the way numbers are. They all weigh slightly different, say. But what is the point of saying... God was perceived this way last century, and now is perceived this way. 
I think I think it I think it helps people to overcome the habitual nature of their own thinking. It allows them to become critical of their own opinions. They say, oh, the Middle Ages were this, and the Renaissance was that, and the Enlightenment was the other. But every period has its contradictions. Every rule has its exception, and every group opposing groups within it. Physicists don't even know what matter is anymore, but we're supposed to explain the Middle East? It's preposterous! Aldous heart was suddenly beating fast. He took a deep breath. The point is that it is useful to examine your own beliefs. So, informed opinions are better than uninformed opinions. Again, I don't know exactly what you mean by better, but, but if you mean perhaps richer or or more complete, then, then I would say, yes, I, I think so. Uh, all right, said Gordon. He felt a spinning sickness in his stomach, but pressed on, driven by his love of his idea. I think I see where you're coming from. It's not, um, it's not productive to talk about absolute beliefs, but what if I pursue this thing that I think is possibly true, not, not true just here and now or in my way, but, but true, with a capital T, and, and suppose I fail, but would you consider that a valid thesis? Alder rubbed his eyes. Oh, the problem is that every single component of your thesis, of which there are scores, is in itself a problem no one, no one cares about anymore. Are the senses valid? Is there a higher reality? Does this logic lead to truth? Is, is there a relationship between knowledge and ethics, ethics and politics? These questions are not even questions anymore. It's, a, it's, like, it's like you're trying to reopen the debate about whether the sun goes around the earth or vice versa. It's horse and buggy, totally out of step. And, and a, a little hokey, if you don't mind my saying so. It's very grand, very system-building, very 19th century. Gordon frowned and wiped the corner of an eye. Okay, um, what if, uh, what, what, what if I were to... Okay, how, how's, how's this? You think it's self-referential. Okay, what if it is an exercise in logic which, and, and I can do this, I think, which says that if logic were true, then this would be the result of certain kinds of thinking. Alder hesitated. Gordon rushed on. Or, or, okay, if that's too much, how about I get rid of the logic part and say, okay, if you are this kind of philosopher, you are likely to advocate this kind of political system. That's all. D did you think that that might be worthwhile? Another problem is that what Plato thought of as democracy would be very different from how we think of it now. You're, you'd be comparing apples and oranges. Actually, they're, they're scarcely both fruit. So, even with the broadest possible strokes, look, said Arthur, I don't want to be the academic ogre. Lord knows we've all suffered under the heels of dinosaurs. I never scuttle an idea on first hearing. It takes me some time to digest as well. Do this. Write me up an abstract, taking into account what we've talked about here. Be enthusiastic by all means, but don't go overboard. Remember, I have to sell it as well. Does that sound fair? Fair. Fair, oh yes, thank you, thank you," said Gordon. His voice thick, his hands wandering over his cheeks. "I can, I can have something on your desk by Monday." "No, not Monday. Take your time. Let some of your admirable excess evaporate a bit. I don't want a manifesto." "So, so an, an introduction? Not more than a few pages. I, I can, I can distill that." Alder raised his finger. "A one-sentence description." Keep everything within that. I can, yes, said Gordon, his head bobbing. He rose, leaned forward, and shook Alder's hand tightly. Thanks again, Professor. Listen, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm. Let's, let's shape it somehow. After the young man had gone, Alder was quite surprised to feel a pit open in his chest, as if his lungs had been replaced by a strange breathless vacuum, and he suddenly remembered when he had asthma as a very young boy. The memory was pungent. He was leaning out his bedroom window at night, his tears drying in the sparkling wind, as his father poked a burning pile of teddy bears in the backyard. Chapter 39 
the boy band video. The costumes were ready, and Al was in a frenzy. He had not scrimped on his spending, which was a relief to him. He felt he had paid for the right to yell. It felt like everyone was inert without his efforts. His yelling, of course, made everyone cautious, and they waited for his approval on simple things, which made him even more crazed. Justin and the others were, were quite wild, naturally, and taunted him by dancing around and telling him to chill out. They had cute little wings and had decided that instead of having halos over their head, they had little hellos instead. Al doubted anyone would get the joke, or even if it was a joke, these riddling kids, who the fuck knows anymore? The delicate precision of lighting, of angles, dangling microphones and stoned extras provoked him endlessly. The director was a burly, bald man in a multicolored Moroccan fez, who had an odd calm, charismatic confidence. He was continually surrounded by people who should, in Al's eyes, have been coming to Al. He glanced down at his clipboard, which had the following list. Activities for the Apprentice Angels. A. A. The A.A. arrive at a park and see a red-faced boy really freaking out about his inability to solve his Rubik's Cube. They discuss it among themselves, miming how to solve the cube, by the time they have sorted it out, they look at the kid again, but the competing angels are standing behind him, laughing as the boy looks down and picks up the Game Boy they've dropped in front of him, throwing the Rubik's Cube into the garbage. The AA are crestfallen. The AA then goes to a junior high school, where a girl is dreaming about a cute boy who ignores her. They discuss how to make her more attractive and decide to give her a special glow in her hair and make her teeth sparkle. One of them goes up and tickles her. Invisibly, she throws back her hair and laughs, her hair and teeth glowing. The AA look up to see if the boy notices. He is staring at another boy who is throwing back his head and laughing, his hair and teeth sparkling, the competing angels behind him giggling. The AA and the girl are crestfallen. Um, a little kid runs away after being bullied in a schoolyard, and the AA gather near him, miming that they will make his heart brave and his muscles strong. They gesture at him, and his chest swells up, and his jaw sets manfully. He goes up to the bully. The other kids stop and stare. The boy uh, puts up his fists. The AA notice the competing angels behind the bully, who gets up with a big smile and puts his hand out to shake the kid's hand. The little kid looks bewildered, and all the other kids laugh at him. The AA and the boy are crestfallen. They try to help a thin girl eat, but the competing angels give her a fat friend instead, so two kids are happy instead of one. There were more, but Al thought they would just be able to handle those. He thought the gay boy one was too risky, but Ian insisted that it be shot, and Al thought he could always drop it in the editing room claiming bad lighting or something. He had decided to shoot them all in the same school hallway, claiming artistic unity. They mocked him for his cheapness, but exceeded. The boys were quite natural in their roles. They easily projected that earnest, happy do-goodery the video required and did wonderful crestfallen looks. They were, they were having a great time. Al watched the extras carefully, trying to discern their reactions to the boy band. The girls were quite excited by Justin, of course. The kid was good-looking, no question. And the others were just goofy enough to compliment his chiseled seriousness. Justin was almost alarmingly professional. He strode among the extras like a seasoned politician, adjusting hats, pulling the glasses off one girl, making little jokes, pointing and smiling at kids he didn't know. "'He's gone beyond irony,' whispered Todd. "'He's become platonic cheese,' said Janine, who was an extra. "'I feel myself dissolving into a vapour of perfectly poised opposites,' said Gerald. And they looked at him rather strangely. "'Yeah, good one, Jer,' said Chris. "'Tigerbeat will love it.' "'Now, boys,' said Ian, "'no bickering. "'Bitch! Wannabe!' "'Oh,' said Todd lazily, "'is it my turn to say stop bickering?' "'All right,' said Chris, "'but only if you and I bicker next.' Al came over. "'All right, we're ready for the great Rubik's Cube lawsuit.' "'Lawsuit?' asked Chris. "'Well, I wasn't sure of the address of the head office in Oslo or wherever the fuck it is, "'so we just have to hope that they're happy with the involuntary product placement.' "'Justin arrived and heard this. "'Oh, no, Al, we should pixelate the product.' "'What? Pixelate? Like the white trash faces on 
They all chimed in, singing in lovely harmony. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? The extras joined in. What you gonna do when they come for you? After another few choruses, Al managed to calm them down. Pixelization is way cool, said Justin. It's like putting TM, the trademark thing, next to an imaginary product. By the way, I'd really like to make sure that that little TM is next to every text of boy band with the umlaut. It needs to be right on the graphic and all over the website. It's essential. My God, said Al. Would you like me to take all the brown M&Ms out? What? asked Justin. Chris snorted. That's what they were parodying with the bread and spinal tap. Dude, some OCD 80s rock band. It's not cool to know the origin of a parody. The parody is all. Deadpanned Justin. Or or was he deadpanning? They had absolutely no idea. Chapter 40. Dave Saves the Day. Terry became a fanatic. His version of the database builder grew by leaps and bounds without reason or restraint. Pierre was the skeptical bedrock of what was actually possible, and regularly struck down Terry's sketchy whiteboard fantasies. They quickly perfected the art of friendly banter. For Pierre, Terry's hair looked like two teddy bears stapled on his head. For Terry, Pierre had the soul of a sixty-year-old man trapped in the body of a twenty-three-year-old. Pierre was initially hired to work on the database builder so that Terry could finish the systems for the clients. The lure of R&D, however, proved too strong for Terry's twitchy fingers, and he began slithering new code into the product, working late at night and sometimes, when he couldn't sleep, very early in the morning. Every morning, Dave would storm into the programming room and say, with forced joviality, Is the program finished yet? To which Terry would scowl, Not yet. When? Not looking up. As soon as possible. Pause. It is impossible to run a business in the absence of reasonable estimates. Perhaps we should have a meeting. That was no idle threat, Terry knew. He would will his fingers from the keyboard and look up. We're working as hard as we can. No one is questioning your dedication, said Dave. This always irritated Terry. No one? There are like five people in the company. I'm not trying to fuck you up. I don't care how long it is, but I need something. I'd tell you if I could. Pause. A week? A month? A year? Somewhere between two weeks and two months. No, said Dave decisively. Two months we can't do. Terry paused. Then then we'll have to drop some features. Whatever you need, said Dave. Just give me something I can sell, hopefully at least a few days before we run out of goddamn money. Dave felt all the elemental helplessness of any business owner who has no idea what his employees do. His basic train of thought, repeated at least fifty times a day, was, Why the fuck does it take so long? Someone in this goddamn business must be finishing software. I see shit on shelves. One of these fuckers are idiots, and I grab the tail of the wrong comet. When will this bull software market collapse? What if we don't make it in time? This kind of gold rush might never happen again in my lifetime. They seem smart, but who the fuck am I to judge? The investors are going to ask me all these questions, and I have no clue how to answer them. Don't these little propeller heads know we have deadlines? Do they think I can just wave my hand and conjure more money? Every day they don't finish, we lose over two thousand dollars. What? What if it? What if it doesn't work? That last thought was too terrifying. Dave always shied away from it. I can't have another fuck-up. That would be four in the last six years. It would become almost impossible to raise money for the next one. So, Dave sat in his office and, and cold-called potential clients and cajoled his way into meetings and, and hemmed and hoard over schedules, phone jammed twixt shoulder and ear, as if he were too busy to see people without adequate notice, and went over cash flow projections to see where another week could be eked out and phoned people who just might have another ten thou to invest in, and paid, played the endless shell game of just another month with creditors and suppliers, and, and called the bank and checked his stocks online. But most of all, in the time-honored tradition of the startup CEO, he waited and cajoled. He waited for the product to be ready, 
and bullied and begged people to let them pitch, and creditors to do si do just once more as he fiddled with the numbers. Finally, he could wait no more. One morning, he came in and said to Terry and Pierre, Listen, boys, I have to be honest with you. I would love nothing more than to give you all the time in the world, but here's where we are. We have $50,000 in the bank. We burn that almost every month. If this product is not ready to demonstrate in two days, I have no idea how we're going to make it. We have a sales cycle of at least a couple of weeks. We get a commitment. I might get a loan to Olympus to the purchase order. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i open to suggestions, but I really don't know what the fuck we're going to do. Look, we've got a problem, Dave, said Terry wearily, his eyes like white marbles in charcoal smudges. We, we found out two days ago that if we try to change the data type of a field, we have to delete it and recreate it. But every time we try to delete a field with data in it, the database engine says it can't be done. So we're, so we're trying to figure out how to store the data, delete the field, recreate it, then put the data back in, but it's tough. What if this field stores word processing documents or, or, or hyperlinks or the new data type isn't compatible with, with the old data type? I mean, what if they take a text field and try to turn it into a date field? We, we, we're trying to figure out what can be allowed, but, but it's hard. There are so many possible combinations. Dave stared at them for a moment, then shook his head. Man, I wish I was in Texas. What? Why? He leaned forward. Because, my friends, I would then be legally allowed to go into my office, pick up a gun, load it, and come back and shoot you both! Terry blinked. But, and I'd get off scot-free, too. All I'd have to do is get a jury of software CEOs and say, well, my brothers, these employees of mine cratered our company because they were trying to solve problems that might come up, oh, say, once every thousand fucking years. They won't just let me off. Hell, they'll give me a fucking reward. Dave, you... Dave suddenly threw his head back and laughed. He had a lot of cavities. Look, boys... <laughs> Just finish this fucker so I can bring food to my family without having to circle the doggy park with a polo mallet. If you're dealing with that kind of bullshit, Christ, even I can see that's pretty goddamn obscure, then just tell the user to fuck off and move on. Forget this problem. I know, I know, you're a perfectionist, that's great, but you're working on the Ark's banisters when the rain has already started. Oh... Oh, that's a great thing. Let's say to the liquidation boys, here, here's a CD of the most perfect piece of almost finished software to throw in your fucking landfill. Please, please, boys, please. Dave clasped his hands in front of his chest. Just give me something I can sell. I don't ask for much. It doesn't have to have time travel and porn. Just something I could click on, make people go wow, and write us a check. Can we do that? Can we? Terry took a deep breath. We can, we can demo the creation of a table and form and the integration of it into the system, but not the unlimited editing of existing tables. What about deleting fields? Pierre and Terry exchanged glances. Sure, said Pierre. That was done, what, three weeks ago? Dave leaned his head against the door. Three weeks. Thirty-three thousand dollars. How much did your degree cost? Never mind. I'm setting up meetings for the day after tomorrow. We have no idea how this is going to edit queries, said Terry. I could give a flying... We're so low on cash, I'll have to drive us. You're both coming. I'm hoping to set a meeting up with Cancor in Boston on Friday. It'll be an 8 a.m. number, so we'll have to go down the night before. And I don't want any coding on the road. You guys are taking years off my life as it is. So finish whatever you've got to do by tomorrow afternoon. We leave at 3 p.m., okay? Terry and Pierre nodded. You guys have suits? They nodded again. Not that powder blue grade 9 grad shit, but real suits? They shook their heads. All right. I'll give you the name of my tailor. Go this afternoon and get some suits. Decent suits. Don't spend a fortune. Tell him you're tech guys. You're more believable than off the rack, but, but look professional somehow. 
And boys, they looked at him. No system crashes during the demo. I almost sweat through my goddamn jacket as it is. After Dave left, Terry looked at his code on the screen. The screensaver kicked in. Pierre whispered, I told you, anal boy. Dave went back to his office, his heart pounding. He rubbed his eyes hard with the heels of his hands. Jesus Christ, what if I hadn't gone in there? Then he smiled broadly. Well, Davy B., that's why you get the big bucks. Chapter 41 Justin Can't Sleep Justin frowned at the ceiling, then rolled on his side and looked at the red LED. 3.19 a.m. It's 3.19 a.m. I'm back in school again. That morning, the morning of the previous day, the morning of the previous day? He'd been taking his mid-morning dump, he always had two, and he'd leaned forward to read the graffiti, a faded Cold War one, Mutate now before the post-war rush, and a small text, despairing in its little simplicity. Shit. School's in again. Justin smiled. Exactly. When he was in his early entertainment phase, around 14 or so, he picked on easy targets. He used to buy the World Weekly News and frame titles like anguished cry of husband Bigfoot stole my wife. One of the ads in the rag was for an LED clock that projected the time onto the ceiling. What a terror for insomniacs, he had thought. Another minute has passed and you are still awake. Insomnia was becoming his secret ailment. Being young, he was not aware of the number of secret ailments being carried by almost everyone around him. Medical defects, quirks, illnesses, and tendencies, small and large, are endemic to the human race, but it takes time and intimacy to find out just how prevalent they really are. For instance, Al, extreme flatulence and occasional hemorrhoids. Greta, constipation, endometriosis. Dave, Excessive sweating. If he uses antiperspirant, armpit rashes. Angela. Menstrual cramps. She compares them to rats gnawing on her intestines. Alder. Crohn's disease. Tendency to gain weight because of medication. Joanne. Ah, lactose intolerance. Irritable bowels. Possibly from vegetarianism. For the boy band. Todd. Uh, back pimples. Uh, Chris. Well, penis pimples. Gerald, cankers, cold sores, uh, Ian, erectile problems, and Justin, insomnia. Justin's secret ailment had been quiet for some time. His lack of sleep had started around puberty and generally took the following forms, uh, taking two or more hours to fall asleep, waking up around 90 minutes after he fell asleep, waking up two hours or so before his alarm, waking up three or more times a night, for up to an hour each time. After a restless night, falling into a deep, heavy sleep about 25 minutes before his alarm went off. Ugh. Justin hated the idea of taking sleeping pills, and so when he couldn't sleep, he played the following mental games with the tireless mania of an obsessive-compulsive card shop. I really don't care when I fall asleep. I won't worry about my day or what is to come. I will worry as much as I can to tire out my worrying. I will imagine my name being painted with a small brush on red velvet over and over. I will read until I feel tired. Ooh, another glass of warm milk. If I have to, I will pee into a glass by my bed so I don't have to walk to the bathroom and back. If I pretend I'm already dreaming and let my visual imagination wander, sleep will take over. Relaxing MP3s on my Rio. Audiobooks. Oh, Olympic masturbation. Midnight. 1 a.m. 2 a.m. Nothing really worked, of course. The body remembers all insults, submits without complaints, and rebels without words. Justin floated above sleep. He could not drop through the soft, 
restoring clouds. He was exhausted, irritable, endlessly self-convoluted. The video had gone well, but the image of the five of them with white feathery wings and overhead hellos, pretending to help, giving up all ambition, this picture went round and round in his brain. His video image leaned over him like a towering angel of decay. The feathers of his wings had roots of rotted flesh. When he flapped them, the stench was overpowering. He turned over, knowing, You can't fight these visions. You can't surrender to them either. Little distractions washed over him like tiny eels in low surf. Unquenchable irritations premonitions of the coming needs of others. Ian's mom wants the band so she can sell her scarves. His dad is desperate for any kind of success. My dad wants to fund his next business scan. My mom... My mom, who knows? But... But why do I want the band? It's it's hard to be cynical at 4am. That's, that's why 4am exists. Justin had never had any clear idea what he wanted to do with his life. His future was a series of unthought intersections of, of skiing and eating small portions and perhaps perhaps something with conference calls in a large office with floor-to-ceiling windows and a desk lamp with a long arched back yawning rainbow light over printed papers, a, a secretary with shapely legs and... But the body sings. The thought ran past him an orphan from a firestorm. The body sings. The brain just chatters. All right, Lao Tzu, he muttered aloud. He hated these little voices. Fucking cryptic fortune cookies. At times like this, he wanted to grab his brainstem in both hands and say, What? What the fuck? You have something to say to me? Say it, you riddling fucking mass of skittish clues. Just fucking say it. Of course, no answer came. Except, when we live in a lie of words, actions are the only clues. Uh, more fucking clues, he thought. Ooh, that's one scary little unconscious I have. Or... Is it God knocking? Yes, God, of course. Come on in. Thanks for all the advantages. Really, I am truly blessed. Shame about the Zimbabwean kid who died of rickets at six days of age, but of course, you're the boss, so more power to you. Oh, this kind of thing can go on all night. He swung his legs over the side of his bed and sat up and cocked his head to one side. Who's playing that? He got up and went downstairs. A CD was in the stereo, playing softly. Odd music? He picked up the bulbous, noise-deadening Bose headphones his father had bought when they were broke, and put them on. Terror gripped him. Suddenly there was a rasping pig-breath in his ears, the distant sound of a little girl singing, and he felt a supernatural sickness shiver down his spine. There's something in the room! He jerked around, his throat thick. The pig-breath started panting, and the girl kept chanting her tune, some sing-song nonsense, and the breathing circled Justin's ears. What the fuck? He heard a bedrock to the sound, a low droning like bees in an endless line-up, a moan of endless regret exhaling for eternity. In his ears there was a, a pause, a gap of silence, with only the girl singing, and then a sudden screeching, shattered his head. His body convulsed. He reached up and clawed at the headphones, but they seemed to have swallowed his ears somehow. Reeling from the screaming assault, he yanked at the headphone cord, but it wouldn't come loose. He turned, screaming himself now, and ran away from the stereo, sprinting at full speed. He ran the length of the headphone cord, and then felt a quick, sick snap in his neck, an elemental tearing, and his vision spun and fell then lay at an unthinkable angle on the kitchen floor, and he saw his own headless body running madly in the kitchen, careening off walls, leaving bloody splashes, groping wildly. Justin woke up, panting. He had turned around in his bed. Jesus, fuck! 
His breath came in gasps. He turned and stared at the door, his belly rising and falling. No sounds from downstairs.